and welcome to The Animated Journey, a podcast featuring interviews with animation professionals working in television, film, and games. I'm your host, Angela Ensminger, and July means animation events galore. First up, Women in Animation is having their West Side Mixer at the Wellsborn in Los Angeles on July 13th at 7.30 p.m. You can RSVP on their Facebook page, but an RSVP is not required to attend. And make sure to check out womeninanimation.org for more information on that. Second, the Perky Nerd in Burbank is having their British Invasion Volume 1 Fan Art and Fashion Show on Friday, July 14th. And that starts at 7 o'clock. And information for that can be found on theperkynerd.com. And starting on July 14th and going through July 16th, Center Stage Gallery will be presenting a master drawing workshop with Henry Yan, and tickets are available now on the Center Stage Gallery website. And coming to San Diego, Comic-Con, July 20th through 23rd, and it promises to be an exciting event. Both Women in Animation and Asifa are going to have some awesome events, and Nickelodeon is going to have an amazing booth. Chris Savino, the creator of The Loud House, Butch Hartman, creator of Bunsen is a Beast, and a slew of other fantastic shows, and Billy Lopez, the creator of Welcome to the Wayne, which is Nickelodeon's newest show, are all going to be on hand, so make sure to check out the Comic-Con event calendar to find out when they will be there, as well as to find out more information on the Women in Animation and ASIFA events that will be going on. And you can find all of the information you need at www.comic-con.org. And finally, Seagraph, the world's largest computer graphics and interactive techniques conference, will be returning to the Los Angeles Convention Center July 30th through August 3rd, and tickets are available now. And all of the websites for all of the events that I mentioned will also be listed on the Animated Journey website, as well as in the show notes. And recently, I was interviewed by former guest and friend of the show, Cassie Soliday, for her podcast, the Ink and Paint Girls podcast. In my interview, I share what it was like growing up in Texas and California, and what it was like working in communications and journalism prior to going back to school and getting into the animation industry. So you can subscribe to her podcast on iTunes, and I will include a link on the website and in the show notes as well. And now, I am so excited to be presenting my guest today. The Nickelodeon Summer miniseries continues with Ariel Goldberg, recruiter for Nickelodeon Animation Studio. Ariel is a wonderful person. His story is absolutely fascinating. And for everyone who has ever wondered how to get into the animation industry, how to set up your cover letter, how to set up your resume, how to get your portfolio together, how to talk to recruiters and other industry professionals, this is the podcast interview for you. And I'm also excited because this is episode 50 of the podcast. I've been broadcasting this podcast now for about a year and a half, and it has been so much fun bringing all of you interviews. So without further ado, I present episode 50, interview with Ariel Goldberg. My guest today is Ariel Goldberg, and Ariel is a recruiter 
here at Nickelodeon Animation Studio. Ariel, thank you so much for being on the program today. Thank you for having me. This is so much fun. I can't wait. I am so excited to talk to you. One, because you're an amazing person, and two, <laughs> because you have done so many things. You've had yeah. such a very, very interesting career that yeah. I know people are going to <laughs> really dig. So let's get started. You let's do are it. A San Francisco native. I sure am. Born and raised. And yeah. That's great because I don't meet a lot of people that are originally from California. So you are one of, it's like me, you, and like five other people at bet. So and it's funny because I, yeah, my, uh, my, my California native cred only goes like one generation deep because my parents are from very far away. So, yeah. so yes. Uh, yeah, but born, raised, California, San Francisco, 415. All right. Yeah. That is cool. And actually, you started off as an actor. So did. how did you get into acting? Yeah. I just got into it in high school, a little bit before high school. I did some, uh, I did a couple of summer camps, like day camps that were theater oriented. And um, I think I, I, <laughs> I had this idea when I was a kid that I was going to be like a child actor and that it was going to be oh. great. And in hindsight, I'm obviously very, very happy that I was not a, a child actor, a child celebrity. But I always loved the idea of performing. And um, and then when I started performing, I got a lot of good response to it. And so I felt very encouraged, kept doing it. When I got into high school, we had a great theater program at Lowell High School where I went to school. And um, I did the drama class, which had its own sort of theater curriculum. Then I did the plays and the musicals. And then through that, I got introduced to, there was a woman, Diane Price, who was directing our school musicals, but she also ran her own theater company, community theater company for teens called the Young People's Teen Musical Theater Company. And so I did that. And yeah, so I did a lot of productions. I must have been in, gosh, like 30 productions between freshman and senior year of high school. I was completely obsessed. I couldn't imagine doing anything else and so the most natural thing was to apply to a theater program and that's what brought me down to LA. I applied to UCLA and uh, came down here when I was just short of 18, a couple months short of 18. I came down to Los Angeles and uh, started the theater program there. And So what was the biggest difference you found between, you know, since you're in 30 productions while mm-hmm. you're in high school, yeah. so what is it like going from high school where you're going, oh I'm in 30 productions, I know what's going on, to yeah. going to UCLA and suddenly being around every other kid that's also it was it was great it was it was fantastic especially because you know in Los Angeles you have I was a little nervous I think that I was going to be in such a movie and tv oriented town where everybody's goal was just to to do commercials which, by the way, is a wonderful profession, and that's a lot of people's bread and butter, so I'm not disparaging it, but, you know, I was very much into theater, and I, I really believed in the classics and uh, and sort of the theater process and the methodology of all that and the technique, and I was really pleasantly surprised to find that everybody was, everybody in my class was super serious about it. You just had this great range of talent, people from all over the country, you know, by and large California, obviously, because it's a California public school. But just so much talent, so much talent. And a lot of the people that I went to school with at UCLA have actually made it to greater and lesser extents. I mean, there are some names that you would recognize that I went to school with and, you know, super proud of and really happy for these people. That's fantastic. Yeah. So then 
What made you decide to go from, you know, being an actor on the stage to then, you know, I want to actually, you know, be a concept artist and do animation and get in on that side? Yeah, that's a great question because when I finished theater school, there was absolutely nothing that was going to divert me from my track. I was going to be I was going to be an actor. That was my chosen profession. I was going to struggle and I think reality hit me <laughs> kind of clean across the face. I, I finished school at sort of, you know, a kind of an unlucky time uh, for for the L.A. film industry. I finished in June of 2007. And then later that year, we had the writer's strike, which kind of put a lot of things on hold in this town. And a lot of acting positions dried up. I'm not saying that, you know, it was a sure success. There's no such thing as assured success for an actor in, in Los Angeles. So uh, I'm sure there were many factors that played into into sort of why I wasn't, you know, quote unquote, making it. But um, it was a big deal. There was a writer's strike. A lot of acting jobs sort of evaporated. A lot of what was going on in 2008, 2009 was, you know, reality television. And so I was doing predominantly theater around LA, a lot of independent and student films and um, sort of the big projects that I was involved in. I was just, I was an extra in those. And, you know, I tried it for two years. And a friend of mine who had gone to school with me at UCLA, Jen, she had taken the more, she had also studied theater, but she'd taken more of the production route. And she uh, found her way as a production assistant at Disney, working on The Princess and the Frog and subsequently Prep and Landing and Tangled. And she gave me a really good suggestion. You know, I had grown up backtracking a bit. I had a very classic art education. My mom is a successful artist in her own right and an art director in the video games industry. And she's from Russia, so she was a bit of a tiger mom. As soon as I showed a proclivity and a talent for drawing when I was about two years old, you know, she was like, "That's this is great. I'm glad you're having fun, but this won't just be fun. You know, we're going to take this seriously. And so, you know, she signed me up, not right away, of course, when I was about nine, ten. I started taking drawing classes in that sort of St. Petersburg, Russian kind of Renaissance principles style very, very seriously, you know, at least three days a week for each class was three or four hours. And it was fantastic. I mean, it was a really, really great education, learned all of the principles of anatomy and form and structure and perspective. And I was also growing up at a time when animation was huge. I mean, I think the first movie that I saw in theaters when I was just short of my fourth birthday, The Little Mermaid came out oh, in, 19, in 1989, in November of 89. And I remember going to see that in the theater uh, with my grandmother and just thinking, oh my God, this is, this is everything, you know, this is great. Because, you know, we sort of forget how dry creatively the animation oh, yeah. well was in from the late 70s to the early 80s. And I certainly don't mean to disparage anybody who was working in the industry at that time. And or and I don't mean to insult anybody who grew up on the cartoons of that time and loved them because, of course, those are the cartoons of their childhood. But I don't think it's super controversial to say that when I was growing up in the late 80s and early 90s, there was just the wealth of animation. I mean, you think about starting with Who Framed Roger Rabbit and even before that a little bit with Oliver and Company, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, then The Little Mermaid, and then you have Warner Brothers with Animaniacs and Tiny Toon Adventures and primetime animation coming out with The Simpsons and uh, King of the Hill. I mean, it was all just happening 
at that time and the Disney Renaissance, of course, first and foremost, a Nickelodeon starting up, right? Here we are talking from within the walls of Nickelodeon. And I mean, that was huge. 1991 with Doug and Ren and Stimpy and Rugrats coming out. It was just such a such a great time. So before I got bitten by the acting bug, there had always been this side of me that really wanted to pursue animation. And I think I'd sort of set that pursuit aside in order to follow my dream of being an actor. And then my friend Jennifer Newfield was really the person who who said, look, you're always drawing. Every theater production that we've done, you've done the poster designs and you've done costume designs. And why not take a stab at it? You'd probably be good. And so I thought, yeah, why not? So I went back to UCLA, true patriot, true Bruin, (laughs) went back to UCLA for animation, which falls under their film program, got my MFA there and got really lucky just with the faculty that we had. My first year there, our character animation professor was a man named Tom Cito, who had been a Disney animator and had, you know, just very, he's had such a great career. And he's now actually the head of the animation program at USC. Wonderful guy and such a great teacher. And he had been with the program there for several years that's my understanding. But he left after my my first year. He'd been offered the position to run the program at USC. And I know that they were sort of scrambling to find a replacement. And I mean, boy, did we get lucky. Because just as Disney was finishing up production on what to date has been their last feature-length traditionally animated film, which was Winnie the Pooh, there were several animators who, traditional animators who left the studio after a long tenure there. And one of them was the illustrious Andreas Deja, who we all know and love for King Triton and Gaston and Jafar and Scar and Lilo and Hercules. I mean, you know, the guy's just incredible. And so he decided to teach really for just that one term. And it was I was lucky that it was my second year because there was such a high demand for his class that they only let second and third year students in. So oh, I really chose the right time to go back to school the year <laughs> earlier. And, you know, and I was surrounded by a lot of really well-disciplined students who I think had been sort of raised on the lore of what Deja had done and accomplished, and others like him, of course, Mark Henn, Glenn Keane, James Baxter, Eric Goldberg. And so people were sort of just sitting and silently soaking in the genius. (laughs) And I think this is sort of, this leads me to the first sort of lesson that I learned, which is that sometimes it helps to be two IQ points dumber than everybody else because I was the idiot who just raised my hand and said, "Um, I'm not getting enough out of this class, which elicited, you know, such such gasps from from my classmates and I said um yeah can I you know I'm not getting enough out of this class can I just treat you to a coffee and just chat with you sometime when it's just one-on-one he said yeah sure why not come up to the house and we can chat there and so I came up to his house and slowly but surely we just kept the conversation going became really fast friends and later on I'm skipping ahead now but after I finished my program he invited me to be a freelance artist on the movie that he's currently working on, Mushka, which we're all in eager anticipation of. And that's been a whirlwind ride. And so that and a good friend of mine, Lisa Ray, who uh, was in school with me at the time, she was the teaching assistant to one of the people who runs our program, Celia Mercer, who has a connection to The Simpsons. 
And so she decided to, Celia decided to do a solid for her teaching assistant, invited her to a table read of an episode of The Simpsons. There was another group there that was starting their own animation production company, and they liked Lisa right away. They asked her if she wanted to be an animator for this new series of shorts, music video shorts that they were doing. She said yes. Uh, they quickly realized they were, were going to need another animator, so she recommended me. And so just by... I, was, I didn't even see her as someone I was building a network with. She was just my friend. She still is. And um, through her, I was able to get my first sort of professional animation job at this small studio Oh gosh, what was it called? Silver Bay? I think Silver Bay Studios, which um, I don't believe exists anymore. It was sort of a quick operation and it was really fun. We were traditionally animating and got to build my resume with professional animation gig at a studio on, on Hyperion Boulevard in, wow. in Glendale and, and a freelance job with Andreas Deja. And yeah, that sort of kicked things off for me, you know, just kind of networking without without really trying to you know yeah but what i like about this so much though is that you are not afraid to ask a question because especially with people that we consider to be the greats in animation there is that tendency of they are magical beings and we you know we can bask in their glow and learn but don't get too close or you might get burned up by you know the glowing rays and i'm really glad that you just said i'm just gonna ask this because i just need to know you know i i honestly we have to realize, first of all, the people that we sort of revere and respect. I mean, personally, it's just not my personality to sort of build idols. That's never been my personality. I don't know if that's a good quality or a bad quality. Maybe I should be a little bit more respectful. I like to think I'm respectful and tactful, but I try not to get weird around people because my assumption, and now being a recruiter for a major studio and seeing a lot of these people, I think my assumption has been proven correct that... These people who are so well-known, they like to be spoken to like a normal person. They get a lot of fans approaching them, and they love their fans, and they respect their fans. But I think it can be a little tiring sometimes to be put up on an altar. That comes with a lot of expectations and a lot of responsibility and accountability. And I think sometimes you just want to be a normal person. And I was also coming from a different perspective, because for a long time I had been immersed in the world of acting. So the people you kind of look up to as an actor are so unapproachable, not necessarily because they're closing themselves off, but because they have, if they have any degree of fame, first of all, they're instantly recognizable wherever they go. They have walls of press agents and lawyers and managers and talent agents who kind of stand between them and and you. So it's very hard to reach out to them forget that back in the day that I was trying to reach out to them they didn't all have Twitter accounts right so I was coming from the point of view where the people I was really sort of keen on meeting not to bask in their glory but to talk about like their craft that's what I really respected them for I couldn't reach them they were unattainable but animators I think we forget these people can go shopping in the grocery store with their kids with the exception of Comic Con and CTN and some of these industry events they aren't necessarily so recognizable visually. Their work is very recognizable, but with the exception of their fans who kind of come to meet them at these industry events, they actually have a degree of anonymity, and I think that makes them more approachable. You know, it makes them a little bit more accessible to us 
lay people. <laughs> so for me, it actually wasn't so difficult to approach somebody like Deja because he was so much more accessible to me than somebody like Dustin Hoffman or a Meryl Streep. That's a really good perspective to have. Yeah. I like that a lot. And you're right. They are, they're people. Before mm-hmm. they became this person, they're just a person who's doing something very interesting and cool. And if you're respectful and nice and just go and say hello, usually they'll talk to you. And typically they'll, they love the opportunity for the most part. I can't speak for them, of course, but the ones that I've met in my experience, they've loved the opportunity to geek out about this world of animation and the history of animation and the techniques of animation. I mean, they're fans of it just like we are, Mm -hmm. you know? That is true. That is true. So you work on these wonderful projects. Mm -hmm. I saw too when I was doing my research that you also had a chance to work for Zynga. I did. So I was freelancing for a long time and as an illustrator, book illustrator, um, character designer, and... I finished grad school, had accumulated a bit of debt, and at that time I'd been living in LA for close to 10 years, and I decided to go back up north, live with my folks for the first time in a decade, which was actually great, and you know, most people don't move to San Francisco to save money on rent, but I for- I was fortunate <laughs> enough to, to have that option, so I moved back into my parents' house, and that was uh, around September, October of uh, 20, what would that have been, 2012. And by the end of the year, I'd found a job, uh, I'd gotten a job as a concept artist with Zynga, working first on a game called Castleville. And then I got to, to try my hand at a little bit of outsource management. When the game was passed off to our team in Bangalore, India, we trained the Indian artists an art director who came to to San Francisco. And so that was really fun to do for a couple of months. I had a little bit of a break and then I was brought back to Zynga to work on Farmville, the original Farmville. I don't know how many iterations there have been of Farmville at this time, but I worked on Farmville 1, doing a few redesigns of the characters there. And it wasn't the longest stint. It went from, let's see, about November, December of 2012 until June, July of 2013. And what happened then was there was a huge sweep of layoffs. We have to remember that at that time, the App Store was kind of a new thing in 2011-2012. And so the idea initially was that console games were going to be, if not replaced, then at least supplemented by social games. That everybody was going to be playing games with each other through social media platforms online, you know, through Facebook, etc. And I think by 2013 the major companies started realizing in a big way that people were playing games through through apps, which just wasn't a thing when social gaming started up. But they all made the switch over from social to mobile, and this resulted in huge layoffs. And so I was laid off from Zynga, and, but that ended up opening new opportunities for me. Yeah, because I saw that then that's when you got into recruiting. So I'm really curious, how did you decide to go from being on the art side with designing and illustrating and animation and whatnot to being on the other side and saying, I'm going to help bring people in? Yeah, so when I was freelancing, something that I didn't really see because I was, you know, alone at home working on my Cintiq, and something that I saw in a big way when I started working in a major gaming studio like Zynga, was that there was this big disconnect quite often between 
this is going to sound like gross generalizations, but between the the quote unquote suits, you know, the business people and the artists, the creatives, and you sort of had this perspective. I could see it. I could see the business people going, "Oh my gosh, here are all these pesky artists who think that theirs is the only part of production that matters." You know, and that was kind of true. true. <laughs> but on the other hand, working as an artist, I, I absolutely saw the artist side of things, which was, oh my God, here you have these suits who are coming here with their quote unquote creative suggestions without any understanding of what this is going to cost us in terms of time and manpower and, and creative juices. And I just started thinking to myself, artists in this industry, we can't avoid having to swallow a bitter pill now and then. But it'll be so much more palatable if this bad news or good news for that matter is coming from somebody that we understand and respect for having a foundation in what we do. We want to make sure that the people who are giving us feedback, the people who are giving us creative suggestions are people who understand our process. And that requires having somebody on the business side who comes from the artist side, which I don't think happens a lot because most artists want to be artists and are not particularly interested in pursuing the business side of things. Again, gross generalization on my part. But one thing that I'd also really been missing as an artist was the social part of the social component that went into my life and my career when I was an actor. You know, when I was an actor, it was all about expressing myself. It was all about being gregarious and personable and really catering to an audience and making sure that I was meshing with that audience and whether I was playing a villain or a protagonist, whether I was in a drama or in a comedy, you always have to, especially in a live performance, you always have to sort of gauge how your audience is feeling that night and feed off of that and serve them up something that will be meaningful. And I wasn't really getting a chance to do that as an artist. And so I started thinking, you know, since there's this need, as I perceived it, for people on the business side of things who came from the artist side of things, maybe I could satisfy that need someday. I wasn't thinking that I was going to be actively leaving the creative side of of the business. But when I got laid off from Zynga, a recruiter reached out to me named Allison Mann. She had been my recruiter at Zynga. And she'd left Zynga a while prior to my layoff and had moved down to Los Angeles uh, to work for Disney Interactive. And she reached out to me after I'd gotten laid off and said, hey, were you impacted? I said, yes. And she said, well, I have this opportunity at Disney. I said, ooh, that sounds interesting. And she said, well, hang on. It's not a creative position. I need a coordinator. And I think this would be a great way for you to learn the business side of things, which was something that I'd expressed to her. And I thought, why not? You know, a three-month contract doesn't really tie me down. I can always determine after three months if it's something I want to stick with or not. It's a chance to network at Disney, if nothing else, and to learn the business side of a creative business. And obviously from the recruiting department, I'd be able to network more easily than probably anywhere else. And as much as I love San Francisco and as much as San Francisco will always be my first home, it is a little bit removed from the industry with the great exceptions of Pixar and Lucas and ILM, it's a little bit, feels a little bit distant. So I'd been thinking maybe I should get back down to Los Angeles. And so I came, it was a major step back in terms of salary. Uh, I'd been making beautiful money in games (laughs) as a concept artist. And so that was a little, a little tough. And it was a major sort of rewiring inside my head that had to happen because when you're when you're working as an artist or as a creative, you're sort of thought to think in, 
taught to think in broad strokes and then refine the details later. Whereas I reported into human resources at Disney Interactive and there it was like, please try to avoid making any mistakes because we can get sued for the mistakes that you make. <laughs> and I was like, wow, that's that's a big responsibility. And I messed up a lot. I mean, I messed up a lot, a lot. And I don't know if Disney Interactive would appreciate my... Uh, my mentioning all the ways in which I messed up, but please know, all you listeners out there, that you can make huge mistakes and still have a future. I owe a lot to Allison and to another wonderful woman named Shalita Strong, who they both just liked me, and so they really pulled for me when I made these huge blunders. I was actually about ready to quit, and I called my uncle because sometimes... You know, sometimes you don't want to go to your parents for advice. And sometimes you don't trust that your friends will give you the right advice. So I called my uncle who runs his own business and uh, I said, Len, what do I do here? I'm really having a rough time. I'm really unhappy. And he said, look, I've never quit a job before a year passed. He said, you don't know enough about it yet to really know if you like it or dislike it. Of course, it's hard. You're with a new group of people. You're in a completely different side of the industry. You're trying to work your brain in a different way. But at that time, they were offering me another three-month contract, and I decided to take it. And something interesting that happened was at the end of six months, so at the end of my second contract with Disney Interactive, something clicked. I suddenly got it, and I was not making these mistakes. And I think once you understand something, and once once you figure out how to make it work and how to be successful at it, a lot of things that you never thought could be interesting can become interesting because all of a sudden you're not working against it. It's working with you. And it's like putting a puzzle together every day. I was a coordinator. You know, I was a full-fledged recruiter. I was just supporting a recruiter, but it required all those parts of me that I'd been missing as an artist. You know, it required me being personable, really managing the relationships between recruiters, between the recruiter and the candidate, the recruiter, the candidate and the hiring teams, really figuring out how to make these schedules work, the whole hiring process. I got into this flow and it got really, really interesting. I started meeting a lot of really interesting people and that made the job super dynamic for me. And I mean, honestly, by the time I was nearing the end of my tenure with Disney Interactive, I was there for about a year and a half total. It was crazy to me when I thought back on my time as an actor. As an actor, I never would have thought that I'd have had a desk job in human resources that I would have liked, you know? (laughs) And I think one of the reasons I ended up leaving Disney Interactive, I mean, Nickelodeon reached out and offered me a full recruiter position as opposed to coordinator, but the position at Nick has also been reporting into production. And I think that was my biggest sort of issue with the job that I had at Disney Interactive was I reported into this wonderful, wonderful team in human resources, but I think I realized that there was still this creative part of me and that HR just wasn't the department where I saw myself growing. With all due respect for human resources, I mean, the work they do is so difficult and so incredible. I just realized that that wasn't the path for me. And Nickelodeon offered me a chance to leverage my title and my experience in recruitment, but to do it for production, which is a department that's much closer to kind of where I see myself growing. That is wonderful. And I like that you stuck with it. Mm-hmm. Because I I know I've done this and other people do this. You get into something and when you first get into something new, if it gets challenging or hard, sometimes you do want to quit. You think, oh, I'm terrible. I have to, I have to escape. And I'm so glad that 
so important to get good advice and have someone say, don't, just wait, just, just hold on, just hold on a little longer, just see how it goes, because he's right. You just need a little more time. You just need a little more time. I think, first of all, just uh, now coming at it as a recruiter, it doesn't look great on your resume to be constantly quitting jobs three months in. But also, you know, time goes much more quickly than than we we care to admit. It's scary how quickly time passes. And a year is not an eternity. I mean, you don't have to stick with a job longer than a year. But if you do commit to a year, just know, even in the worst of situations, which... I was not remotely in at Disney Interactive. That was a nice job with wonderful people. It was just a challenge up front. But a year flies by. A year will fly by, even on a challenging job. And you'll learn a lot. You'll learn a lot in that year that you couldn't possibly have taken in in three months. The first three months, you're still just getting through your learning curve. There's no way you you can fully stop, take stock, and appreciate where you are, what you're doing, what your contribution to the group is, that all comes closer to months eight, nine, ten, you know? So yeah, I would say hang in there. I mean, don't let yourself get abused, obviously. <laughs> but if it's just sort of the normal challenges of a job, the normal headaches of a job, hang in there. Give it a year. I think you'll be the happier in the long run for having done it because you'll learn a lot. That is wise advice. And so now we bring you to being a recruiter here at Nickelodeon. So what does your job entail? So there are at least three major components to my job. The first that I'll start with is sort of the obvious one. I, the people I work the most closely with are the producers. I do a weekly check-in with each of the, each team, each production team that we have. Oh, backing up, I recruit for our animated productions here at Nickelodeon. So I don't necessarily handle the executive assistants and the mailroom. I don't necessarily staff those positions, even though they are here at the studio. I focus specifically on the production and creative and technical positions that are on each of our animated productions. So that being said, I partner most closely with the producers and weekly check-in. They let me know what positions they need filled, if they've filled any positions, I will post the positions that we're looking to fill. I'll look at the candidates as they come in. It's not a void that you're applying to. There actually is a person on the other end, and that person is me. I will go through everybody who applies to a position. It's a lot of people quite often. And I'll kind of make the first selection of people that I think are right for that particular show. Again, it's not necessarily just because a person doesn't get selected doesn't necessarily mean that that person is without merit or that his or her portfolio isn't good. It just might not be right for that particular show. And so I will, on the basis of portfolio and resume, submit my recommendations to the production teams. And then they typically take the recruitment process from there. That might be a little bit in flux. I might be taking on a little bit more, but as it stands right now, they will take on the rest of the hiring process. They will be the ones to hand out artist tests for you know storyboard and design and paint positions. They will be the ones to schedule their interviews and to make the final selection. And they'll partner with our human resources division to exercise the hire. Additionally, I take a lot of informational meetings within the studio. I see that sort of as the second component of my job is kind of artist management. Whether it's artists 
and other professionals who are trying to break into a Nickelodeon or break into the animation industry and are just looking for somebody to reach out to. I'm here, I'm accessible. I do take meetings. You know, I can't take every meeting, but I take as many as I can. And so I'll invite people into the studio to chat for 30 minutes or so, you know, talk about their portfolios, talk about anything that interests them. And additionally, part of that is also a huge push that I make for talent retention, really trying to make Nickelodeon the studio that looks out for you when your tenure on a particular show is ending. That can be because maybe a show didn't get picked up for another season, so the show's winding down, so we have to figure out what to do with its crew, or perhaps a phase of production has ended and the people who work for that phase of production have to take a hiatus for a few months and they need to figure out you know what they're going to do how they're going to fill their time how they're going to get a paycheck for two or three months so i take meetings with all of these folks i'll send them emails and say hey would you like to chat i see that you have an end date coming up in a few months let's discuss sort of strategy if there isn't anything for people here at the studio i have a network that i've built up with all of the other recruiters in our industry And so I'll reach out to those folks and do a bit of what we call reverse recruiting, say, hey, I have this really talented storyboard artist, for instance, that, gosh, I wish I could keep, but I just don't have a position for him right now. What do you guys have right now on your roster? Could you use somebody like this? So I really try to make sure that we either keep the person or that we're able to quickly rehire that person, or if neither of those options is possible, that we land that person a job elsewhere. You know, I'm certainly not opposed to a person taking a job with Disney or DreamWorks or Cartoon Network or Warner Brothers or, you know, Six Point Harness or any of the other wonderful studios that we have around town. I think it's it's such a, it can be such a transient business and people go from one studio to the next. The important thing for me is that they get a job. And sort of the final component of my job is I do a lot of the outward-facing sort of brand ambassadorship of the studio. So I will go to industry events such as San Diego Comic-Con, CTN Expo. I'll go to the Annecy Film Festival, the Ottawa Animation Film Festival, Savannah Film Festival, and numerous others around California, around the United States and internationally to meet with artists abroad. Just came back from one in Mexico City called Creativa Fest, which is a great event. And so it's wonderful to go and sort of make sure that Nickelodeon has a presence for all of our fans and for all the artists who get inspiration from us. Those are sort of the three main components of my job. And right now I'm also focusing a lot on strategy, making sure that Nickelodeon is competitive in recruiting talent and and keeping the top talent in the industry. That is quite a lot. And that is very impressive. Yeah, it's fun. It, it keeps me busy. Absolutely. And I'm glad you mentioned this too up top that it is not a void. When people apply, they are applying to a person. Because I mm-hmm. know from experience and from talking with other people and questions that I get for the show, when people are, especially when they're starting out, when they're first applying, it can sometimes feel that way of, I'm sending out my material where is it going? And so it's great to hear that it's it's going to a person. It's really going to a person. We this. have, but I do think that people can help themselves. Mm-hmm. I think when you look, the fact that I'm I'm a team of one and a half. I have there's me, and then my boss's coordinator Kate helps me a lot with my inbox, email inbox, and a few other ancillary projects. But I do share her with my bosses, and she's fantastic. But 
the fact that I'm working predominantly alone in recruitment is actually not unusual in TV animation. In feature animation, these departments tend to be a little bit more staffed up. But in TV, a lot of studios, major studios, don't even have a formal recruiter. It'll just be you know producers and execs and maybe an HR representative here and there who are doing it themselves. And so I think as a candidate, you can help yourself be more competitive by putting yourself in the shoes of a person who is single-handedly going through what can be 30 open positions and 500 applicants per position. It's a lot to go through. And so, you know, really make sure that your portfolio stands out. Make sure the first thing I look at in your portfolio is something that's going to keep me hooked because not because I or any of us are jerks, but just because of the volume, the huge volume of portfolios and resumes that we have to get through. If we see what we're looking for, we might linger on a portfolio for for a while just because some of this artwork is so gorgeous to look at. But if we don't see what we're looking for and we don't find it within the first seven seconds, and it's really that short, and it's not because we're jerks and it's not because we're insensitive to, to the plight of artists. Look, more than a few of us have actually been artists or producers ourselves. So we totally understand. We're rooting for every artist who applies, but people can help themselves by helping us a little bit too. Put your best work forward. I'd rather see a portfolio that's got fewer pieces, but that are all consistently good. Sort of know the subject matter and the thematic content of the production for which you're applying. You know, if you're applying for a studio like Nick, then post-apocalyptic wastelands and industrial science labs and creature designs, all of which are so gorgeous and that would totally be applicable for Blizzard Entertainment, might not be the right fit if you're applying for SpongeBob SquarePants, right? Mm -hmm. So know your audience and really you can help yourselves in a big way by just putting your best work forward, by making sure your resume is super clean and professional, don't exceed a page on your resume, Make sure your cover letters are short and to the point. Make sure your emails, if you are sending emails, are short, concise, and to the point. I know people people want to pepper their emails with flowery languages and throwing, you know, sort of grandiose compliments upon the studio or the show for which they're applying. But actually, the most tactful and respectful and kindest thing you could do is just to get straight to the point. Because chances are, I've got a hundred other emails to get through that day. And again, not because I'm a jerk, but I'm saying this because you guys out there, you should know what the reality is because that reality isn't going anywhere. So make it work for you, not against you. That is really good. And I have a, a couple of questions here. What's the best way to keep in touch with a recruiter when you're waiting for a position to open up or after you submitted something and if you don't get the job, but you still want to have you know, keep in contact, what's the best way to do that? Absolutely, and I think there are great ways to do that. I don't think, look, you can go one of two extremes. You can either keep in touch every minute of the day, in which case, I hate to say it, but you might become a little bit of a nuisance, or you could completely fall off the radar, and then the next time you reach out, I've sort of forgotten who I'm talking to. I think there is a great middle ground. If you have the contact of a recruiter, first of all, If you see a position posted that you're interested in, it never hurts to, after having applied, to also follow up with the recruiter. 
that never, never, never will hurt you. It can only help you because honestly, we have to go through this applicant tracking system and we have to go through 500 or 600 applicants. Any way that you can help yourself stand out, it's actually helping us. You're doing part of our work. Part of our work is to source through the candidate pool. If you're letting us know that you applied, you're doing part of our job for us. We're super grateful that you've done that. So anytime you see a job that you're interested in, apply and follow up with the recruiter. Say, hey, I've applied, just wanted to let you know. That's a great way to go about it. If in the meantime, you're not seeing positions that are posted online, an email faux pas that I see sometimes is, uh, hey, I'm just wondering if there are any background design positions available at Nickelodeon. And sometimes the person sent that email and I actually have a background design position posted online. It can be a little tiresome sometimes when somebody hasn't even done the legwork to check online Mm -hmm. to see what we have posted. Now, maybe they just needed an excuse to start the email with, but just know that we all see through that because we get a lot of emails like this. Mm -hmm. So just be upfront. Just say, hey, I saw this position I want to apply. Or, hey, you know, I haven't seen, uh, I'm a background designer. I haven't seen any positions in background design in a while, but I wanted to reach out to see if maybe there were some coming down the pipeline. If we already have a rapport going, if we've already been corresponding for a little while, then you can always follow up even if you don't see a position, but you can always follow up with a question. You can always, you know, an intelligent question, please. (laughs) You can always follow up with a professional update, like say, hey, just wanted to let you know I got this job over at Starburns, uh, but I'm still super interested. It's a six month gig. So afterwards, I'd love it if I could reach out to you when, you know, when that's coming to a close to see what's coming down the line at Nickelodeon. I love getting professional updates. Like my reply might be short only because of my time limitations, but professional updates, any intelligent and insightful questions that you have or inquiring if there's a position coming down the line. I think that's all a really great way to go. Just make sure your email is short. It really shouldn't be longer than hello, maybe two or three lines to explain what your question or statement is and then a nice salutation uh, at the end please keep your emails short and yeah reach out there's no real limit on how often you can reach out but just know that if you reached out last week chances are things haven't changed much this week so you know a cadence of every month or you know sometimes even every couple of months if you're reaching out four to five times a year that's a good cadence i mean i'm not gonna forget who you are if you're reaching out quarterly especially big thing you guys can all do is once you start an email thread or chain, whatever you want to call it, with a recruiter, please keep all future correspondence in that chain. So that, because sometimes, you know, you're reaching out and you're saying like, hey, it's Jenny, just wanted to follow up. And I'm like, oh gosh, Jenny, I have no context as to who this is and I don't remember. I've spoken with 50 Jennies. So make sure that you've got the entire email chain, I'll be able to go back a few threads and go, oh, yeah, 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 that's that's what that context is. That's always super helpful to a recruiter. You don't want to set us up for embarrassment. You don't want us to have to go, I'm so sorry, but who are you? Because we feel badly, we feel guilty, and then you never want to be the object of someone's guilt. It's a psychological thing. People tend to avoid the thing that makes them feel guilty or the person <laughs> who makes them feel guilty. So don't make people feel guilty, you know? Help us help set us up for success by always providing context as to who you are and what the conversation is about. That is wise. I I like that a lot. 
Make it so that when you see them, you feel happy about seeing them and not, oh, oh no. And not guilty. Oh my gosh. (laughs) I need to avoid this person because I don't remember their name. (laughs) They're going to make me feel badly about it. All right. So you mentioned some of these, but just to to get a little more more specific, what are some common mistakes that people do when they're Mm -hmm. talking to recruiters that they just need to stop? Just don't (laughs) don't do this. Like buyer beware. (laughs) Buyer beware. So, okay, I'm going to get real for a second, and this is going to sound a little bit harsh, but again, it's, it's all in your service. So hopefully you'll, you'll take it at face value and not read too much into it. My job at the end of the day is not to make someone's career happen. That's a perk of my job. If, if in staffing a position, I've also opened up a job for, for somebody who's kind of green and this is their first great opportunity and I've been able to play a part in that, that's fantastic. That's a perk for me. If there's somebody who maybe took a long hiatus from working and is now having a difficult time getting back into the industry and I've been able to help them, that's a perk of my job. But at the end of the day, that's not actually my job. That's not really a recruiter's job. We do not work for the candidates. We work for the producers, for the hiring managers we have to satisfy their needs. So my main ambition is to get them the right person. And it's not personal, it has nothing to do with a particular artist specifically, it has to do with finding a portfolio and getting that portfolio in front of the hiring team. That might sound a little bit cold, but a big faux pas that people make sometimes is taking a tone of of entitlement and like uh, approaching me, I've seen them do this with other recruiters as well, approaching us with this attitude like we owe it to you to get you this job. We owe it to you. Your job is your responsibility. Just like my job has been and continues to be my responsibility, your career is you take all the credit and you get all the blame. Those two things go hand in hand. You can't have it one way and not the other. So yes, I mean, you want to stand out. Yes, you want to make an impression. Yes, you want to be memorable and reach out and continue to reach out so that you don't fall off of people's radars. But you never want to make people feel like you think that they owe you a job, that they owe you your career, because that is entirely your responsibility. And when people take that tone with me, that's a really great way to just close me off from them. I had somebody, I'm obviously not going to name names, but uh, I'm professional enough, at least for that. But, you know, I had somebody who asked me once for some portfolio feedback, and I gave her some feedback. And to her credit, she took some of that feedback and applied it and, you know, sent me her portfolio again. And, you know, I commended her on some of the stuff that she'd improved upon and I let her know other things that I thought were still kind of lagging and instead of taking it at face value she she wrote back to me wow I took a month off of work to apply the notes you gave me I did this for you and the least you could do is get me a job at Nick and I went, whoa, <laughs> I didn't realize that's the conversation we were having because no, no, I can't, you know, I can't, I can't just promise you a job, especially if I don't think you're the right fit for a particular show or, or whatnot. And now I 
don't know if you're the right culture fit for our studio. I don't know if I can recommend you just as a worker. We have a policy at Nick, which is uh, we don't hire brilliant jerks. You know, you might be a great, great artist, but if you're going to come in and demoralize the rest of the crew with your attitude, then, you know, we'd rather take somebody who's only 90% as good as you, but that's going to be, you know, great to work with. And I think that's the major faux pas that I run into is people who have a sense of, of entitlement. This is the real world. Unfortunately, fortunately or unfortunately, we're not really entitled to anything <laughs> in life. You know, life is what you, you can take and hang on to. And hopefully, while you're taking and hanging on to things, you're also you know, being a decent person, <laughs> you know, you're not undermining other people yeah. in your effort to take and hold on. But yeah, you have to, your life and your career is your responsibility. And when that becomes clear to you, then I think you're going to approach the people who can help you in respectful and tactful ways. And, and I think that's, that's going to be a sign of professionalism and people will respect you sort of out of the cage if you come with a professional and respectful attitude. That is that is excellent. I love that. I love that. I think that answers it because that's the biggest thing. Like there's this, it's this grand mystery to people, and I'm just so glad that you were just able to demystify that. It's it yeah. sounds like it's not so much a mystery. It's just be respectful and do good be work. Be respectful and just and just think about the person on the other end of everything. You know, you've written this. I see these cover letters that are pages and pages long, it's a novel. And I think, oh my gosh, this person put so much of himself or herself into this and worked really, really hard. And I feel bad because I just don't have the time to read it all. So when you're writing your novel for mass readership, that's one thing. But when you're writing a cover letter, just be cognizant of the person who, with major time constraints on the other end of that cover letter who's gonna be reading it and who has to get through it quickly. The more you can sort of have empathy for the person on the other end, the more that'll come back to serve you. That is excellent. Well, Ariel, do you have any other? I mean, this has been wonderful. So first oh, awesome. of all, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for, for having me. This is great. Absolutely. And just being so honest, because I know that people are going to get a lot out of this. Is there anything that I haven't asked or anything that you're just dying to share before we wrap this up today? I would say a lot of people who come out of school, and I was certainly in the same boat, you know, there's a small kind of elite handful of studios that are on their radar, and there's a small kind of a short list of positions that they want to, that they want to work in. I would say don't be above taking any job. This industry can be very, very hard to break into. It can take a while. A studio like Nickelodeon or Disney or DreamWorks can be the first employer for some people, but most people don't start here. So don't be above going to a smaller studio. You can learn a lot at the smaller production houses. Don't be above starting in the mailroom. We actually have two or three people just since I've been here, and I've only been here two and a half years, two or three people at least who have started in the mailroom and who are now working in production you know, your classic Hollywood story, <laughs> starting in the mailroom and working your way up. And I, these people I know are going to make great things in themselves. So just remember, it's so much easier to navigate 
from within the system, from within a studio, than from the outside. So get in any way you can. Start building your network. Don't just build your network vertically. You know, Don't just reach up to people that are already further along the career ladder than you are. Make sure you don't abandon your friends on the lateral level because on case in point, the first person who helped me get a job was my colleague in grad school. She was not further up than me. She just happened to get a job and then she put my name in and that's how I got my start. So don't forget your friends. Navigate your way both up and laterally and don't be too big to start anywhere because getting the start is the hardest hurdle. And everything else will come much more easily once you've gotten that start. Thank you so much. Where can people find you online? People can find me on LinkedIn. My name is Ariel Goldberg. You can find me as the studio recruiter at Nickelodeon. (laughs) If anyone's interested in my old website that I haven't updated in years, it's ariel-goldberg.com. Yeah, I would say LinkedIn is great. LinkedIn is a great tool for, for connecting with with recruiters, for connecting with hiring managers. A lot of our industry is on LinkedIn, and I hope LinkedIn sends me a check for saying that. Send this man a check. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. But that's where you can find me. We have a lot of information about our studio at nickanimationstudio.com. If you're interested in applying, it's nickanimationstudio.com slash jobs. All right, well, Ariel, you have been so generous with your time today. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Angela. It's been a ton of fun. And that concludes my interview with Ariel Goldberg. Special thanks to Ariel for being a wonderful guest. And if you've enjoyed today's interview, make sure to leave a review in iTunes. All of your reviews help more and more people to find out about the show. And you can also support the show by visiting www.theanimatedjourney.com and clicking on the PayPal button on the right-hand side and leaving a donation. And you can also support the show by visiting our sponsors, Amazon, Audible, Loot Crate, and Blueberry Podcast Hosting. Every time you click on the banner ads and make a purchase, a little bit of money comes back to the show. And all of your donations and all of the advertising support helps me to keep the show up and running by helping me pay hosting costs, technical costs, all the costs associated with keeping a podcast up and running, And thank you so much to everyone who has donated to the show, who has left a positive review, who has sent me very kind emails and Tumblr messages and Twitter messages and messages on Instagram. I read every single one and I appreciate all of you so much. So thank you so much for your support. And to find out what's been going on in the world of animation, make sure to check out the Facebook page at facebook.com slash the animated journey. On Tumblr, the site is theanimatedjourney.tumblr.com. And on Instagram and Twitter, you can follow the podcast at AnimJourney. And to see what I've been up to lately, you can visit my website, www.sketchysoul.com. On Tumblr, the address is sketchysoul.tumblr.com. And on Instagram and Twitter, you can follow me at sketchysoul. So thank you to everyone for listening, and until next time, be encouraged, and have a great day, everybody. Bye.